Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Trey Verboe, I'm your host. And today I'm talking with Michael Bauman. Now, Michael's a really unique guy. Michael grew up in Papua New Guinea. Think about that. And would get shuttled back and forth to the U.S., before finally coming of age and actually moving to China with his family. And now Michael is a Tony Robbins coach and is going to walk you through a number of the reasons why very successful people, especially very successful men, oftentimes are left feeling unfulfilled or unhappy or uh, insecure on the inside. This is a really important topic because a number of my own clients are men who on the outside you would look at and go, wow, I would kill for his life. I would kill for his income, his house, his garage, his marriage, all the things. And then you actually peel back the layers a little bit and find that that man is deeply hurting or deeply longing, deeply wishing for things that can't be purchased. And so Michael and I dive into this one and and really uh, start to tease apart ways that men can start to have both the inner satisfaction, the inner joy, the inner peace, and the outer success. So give this one a listen, wide open ears, open heart. And if you would, check out our sponsor on this. Go to curednutrition.com forward slash uncivilized and use the code uncivilized to get yourself a pretty sweet discount. I love Cured products. I love that they've sponsored this podcast since the very, very beginning when there were like three of you listening uh, and continuing to sponsor the podcast as we go. All right. Without further ado, Michael Bauman. Michael Bauman, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on the other side of the mic this time. Uh, even though I'm going to tell everybody it's, it's what, 9 p.m. where you are. And <laughs> it's just getting light here in Colorado. So we're both a little <laughs> bit like, wah, wah, wah. like <laughs> yep. my day is just starting. Yours is beginning. Uh, You have a really interesting story, but before we dive into that, please tell people where you are, what brought you there, and a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so that's a that's a that's a long question there, but um, (laughs) I grew up. So I actually grew up in Papua New Guinea, and for those of you who don't know, it's a tropical island right above Australia. Um, Had a wonderful time growing up there. Um, and that actually formed a lot of kind of the underpinnings for what I'm doing right now. So what's fascinating about Papua New Guinea is, you know, it's described as one of those last like frontiers of the world, right? They're still like cannibals in places and, you know, it's very impassable in, in some in some areas and very interesting to see the people there are so happy and they have so much life and vitality for the most part, right? This is an overgeneralization. Sure. Um, but they're very happy and they have very little, very little subsistent farmers, you know, so they just farm and then they eat the food that they're, you know, that they farm from, um, have very little, but they're very happy. And then I, you know, ended up coming to the States for university. I was there for, you know, for a while and to see the kind of direct contrast. So there's wonderful things about the U S wonderful things about the States, you know, that individual culture is beautiful in some ways. You know, there's a lot of things that you can rags for riches, achieve your dreams, things like that. But there's also such a loss of community and happiness and generosity and hospitality. Again, an overgeneralization sure. um, there. So I ended up coming there. I was a personal trainer for a while because I wanted to help people, got into the health scene. And then basically it was like, oh, I need to learn about behavioral change. If I actually want to help people, right? So it doesn't matter how much I know about the exercises or, you know, gluconeogenesis or whatever it is, right? Like it matters. Like, can I actually coach this person in front of me to eat three servings of vegetables? Mm -hmm. So I got into the change psychology, behavioral psychology, started my own business, 
trying to do online personal training, nutrition coaching, totally failed at it. We can maybe get into that. Like went into the darkest period of my life. And then we, we ended up just me and my wife switched gears. We're like, let's get out of here. We moved to China and we've been here in China actually ever since. And so what I do now is I'm a Tony Robbins certified peak performance coach, just essentially helping entrepreneurs mainly, but people in general feel like they're enough and that they're not alone because it's just such a huge, huge issue. And then I have a, a podcast, it's called Success Engineering, and I interview tons of fun people along with that, like Traver. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Okay, let's, let's back up if we could a little bit. What took, why were you living in Papua New Guinea? Was it your parents stationed there? Were they in the military? Or what, what, what took you there? And if I am understanding, you went all the way through high school there? Yeah. So my parents, my parents were working over there and um, we would do like four years over there and then come back to the States for one year and then do four years, four years back over. And then I, yeah, went all the way up through high school before I I came back to the States for college. So you had like one year or three years of American schooling interspersed. Yeah. That, that actually plays a role into my story as well. Talk to Um, me about that. How was it to go from, because I remember coming back from Japan and my first year thinking, oh my God, I can't believe it's this boring. I can't believe that everything's so, and I'm not trying to say I was smarter than everybody because I wasn't, but the academic emphasis was not there in Japan. It was like academics, everything in the U S sports, everything. So how did you navigate because that's a very unique experience. How did you navigate that? Very, very roughly, to be yeah. honest, because people would talk about it and they're like, oh, you're, you came home to the US. And I'm like, no, yeah. I left my home. Mm. I left everybody I knew. I had to pack up my entire house, you know, because mm. sometimes people would like stay in your house while you're gone. So you pack up everything. You write on the boxes like sell if I don't come back, send if I don't come back. So there's wow. always this thing of like, will I ever go back? And then you come to the States because we would do kind of like six months in Indiana where my dad's family is. And then six months in Pennsylvania, I was basically like homeschooled. So I had no friends. Oh. I would just like be so alone riding my bike around. Like, yeah. this is awful. And then I would go back to, you know, the life that I had in Papua New Guinea. So yeah. those, those times are actually really rough. And I would yeah, say there was right. some of the first like tastes of kind of like, just like loneliness, like I just like mm. so alone, you know, at, mm. at different periods. Yeah. Michael, were you in an American school or an international school in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, it was an international school. Not, a, not a big one, but okay. definitely, I think there was maybe like 13 different nationalities in our class, but we only had maybe 30 people. So it's uh, like half okay. the class is like different nationalities. Wow. And so if I can ask, why did you come back and to the U.S. and sort of start your life here as opposed to just establishing yourself and staying in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, so that's just basically a purely like the academics. You know, the universities there are gotcha. you know not not very good. So sure. it's kind of the expected thing as you come back to the U.S. to do to do college. Okay, and so when you started in fitness, was like so I, I get it. You're like you're planted back here. You're living back here. I'm really curious as someone who's still connected to a lot of international students or people who did that kind of plucked out of your life and then inserted into somewhere else. Did you feel like the U.S. was home when you came back here? And more importantly, did you feel like anywhere was home? That's a good question. And I feel like I did that transition actually a whole ton better than coming back endure for those one years because I actually made an intentional choice when I came back to the States. I'm like, there's nothing that I can do to get back to where I was. Mm. And so I might as well make the most of what I have here. And I had friends, even actually from my class that went to the same college as me, that a lot of times, you know, international students like that, it's very hard because you're around people and you're like, they don't understand me at all. Right. I speak, you know, you speak a different language. You don't know a lot of the pop culture references. You're just like, this is totally different. Yeah. And so a lot of people will hold on to where they were at, but it just causes such loneliness and disconnect from where they are right now. And I actually did the reverse. So I felt like I just really plugged in. I made a bunch of friends and I, I made it like, okay, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be here really, really well. And I feel like I've carried that through different times 
Mm-hmm. Um, but even moving to China and stuff, I've had a lot of those transitions. And it is hard when you're in that revolving door kind of you know, scene where people are just like here for a year, here for two years, and then they leave. And that can, yeah. get, that can get challenging. Just out of curiosity, and I'm asking this question, literally basing it around the internet, what year was this that you left Papua New Guinea and came back to the U.S.? This was 2013. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so I did it yeah. in 92. And I'm curious, just what would be the difference of experience of, so when I left Japan, there was no Facebook, there was no email. It was like handwritten letters to people. And so the cut, the like severing of the tie to that place, I think was far more drastic, but also probably it might've on some level been healthier because we couldn't keep in touch with everybody and I couldn't keep one foot in Tokyo and one foot here. So just, just, I was just curious. Talk to me, if you would, about the decision to move, because again, you've, there's, there's some really unique aspects to your story around the idea of transition. And I'm asking this question because so many of the listeners of this podcast are in transition or about to be in transition or are fighting like hell to deny the fact that they're in transition. <laughs> so can you talk to us about a, a little bit about the decision process, especially emotionally, to uproot yourself and then move to somewhere as drastic, I will say drastically different as China? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, fundamentally, just as, you know, how we're wired, we tend to, you know, try to avoid pain and move towards, towards pleasure. And Mm -hmm. so I would say I could see that thread, you know, looking back. So I was, I was doing personal training. I kind of hit, I was assistant department head. I kind of hit the glass ceiling and I was like, you know, let me start out on my own. So in my naivety, um, I'm like, oh yeah, let's be, let me do my business. My wife, you know, isn't working and, but I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, succeed at this. And totally, like I said, I totally failed at it. I, and then we found out maybe a couple weeks after I had quit my job that we were pregnant with our first kid. So okay. basically like we have no money. I'm, I'm do- like door to door selling, you know, my services, which I'd done door to door sales two summers in college. It was awful, awful, but it taught me a lot. Um, so I'm just like knocking on doors. My wife is like, has morning sickness, you know, it's like throwing up back at home and being like, why aren't you here with me? <laughs> we have no money. Like my dreams are just crashing into the ground. Um, it's, it was really rough, you know, so then you start taking like odd jobs. Right. So I'm like landscaping a little bit on the side, like trying to be like, Oh, I'm going to pay some bills, you know, working like 12 hour days. It's like this summer. And I'm like, you know, doing hay bales and, you know, whatever it was, it was awful. Um, so basically a lot of pain, right. This is getting to the point where I'm trying to avoid this pain. Yeah. Right. So essentially the transition got to the point where I'm like, this is awful. Right. And so my wife, you know, she's a, she's a teacher and we're like, well, if we're, if we're going to look for jobs, we might as well start looking, you know, why not just looking at the international scene and mm. what's interesting about it. And, you know, Tim Ferriss and stuff talks about this um, kind of like a fear setting technique, right. Where you go like, what is the absolute worst scenario that would happen and how yeah. bad is that really? And so you think people think China and they're like, do you speak the language? And I'm like, no, you know, do like, that's just crazy that you'd move your family over there. But I'm like, actually right now I'm in a ton of pain. Like mm. I don't have any money. Like I'm, I'm pretty low. The worst that can happen is I go over there for a year. It's awful. And I come back and just get another job here. Mm-hmm. But actually that change totally revolutionized like our entire life, pretty much every way. And, you know, we moved to Shanghai. So Shanghai is like New York city. Like it's like living in New York city. Like, you know, there's English and stuff everywhere and, you know, totally different feel, but making that change through that painful transition was the best decision essentially I'd ever done for the family up to that point. Wow. I don't want to skip over the, the dark part. So can we go back a little bit to just how did you deal with all of that emotionally? Because again, a lot of the people listening to this just find themselves in tough spots and I think it's it's helpful to hear, especially from another man, for men to hear, yeah, it's first of all, it sucked just to own that it sucked. And then how did you navigate? My buddy Jeremy calls it the valley of the suck. He's <laughs> like, I bought a condo yes. in the valley of the suck and lived there for a couple of years. How did you navigate <laughs> being there 
And how did you navigate the transition out of it? Yeah. Navigating being there is really rough. Like it is the valley. It's the valley of the suck. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can say like all these, you know, very like I did this mental skill and you know, whatever, like, no, it just is awful. Like I remember like sitting in my car one time, just like crying, (laughs) just being like, this is so, so awful. You know, my wife's struggling with depression. Like Mm. we have this kid I can't provide, you know, like as a man, like you just want to provide. And I just felt so powerless through that time. It was, it was tremendously helpful looking back on it. So I wouldn't say like I handled it super well. The thing that I would say is I had, we had one really good friends, like family that was our friends that, that were literally like, they gave us money every single month Mm. and they didn't have a lot. They were just like, we believe in you guys so much that we're actually going to give you money or maybe buy you tickets to go to the movies or to go to a restaurant or, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't emphasize how much, like how much that meant to Mm. us. Mm-hmm. at that period of time. Um, and that was really, that was really it. We had this one family that was like, we believe in you through anything. Wow. And I feel like getting through those times by yourself is just very um, difficult. You know, there are mental tools and things that you can do and reframing and stuff like that. But sure. we had one family that really got us through that. Yeah. That's, I think it's helpful just to acknowledge that you were willing to take that help and you were willing to accept that help especially how you started the conversation is saying coming from a place like Papua New Guinea, coming to America, which is very individualistic and, and very isolated. I think not just in our challenges that we're isolated, but in our, our way of living is like, Hey, it's, it's, it's me against the world. Yet we've forgotten some of the village idea. And it sounds like, you know, Michael, I don't know a lot of people who've gotten through really, really dark periods completely alone. Or like, nope, did it all on my own. Woke up alone, meditated all day. It just sucks. Like, took care of myself. Uh, there's, there's definitely the concept of allowing people to come in and help. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Okay. And one thing on that go, before, please, we, go ahead. before we move off of that yeah. a little bit more. Um, just for me, like, if I'm being you know totally honest, one of my like biggest fears, one of my deepest fears, is like to essentially be, and this is probably, I would assume, <laughs> a very you know prevalent one, especially for men, to basically be at your weakest point. So to mm-hmm. feel powerless, to feel out of control, and then be scared that there'll be no one there to actually stand stand in the gap essentially for you. Mm-hmm. And going through that is incredibly scary. And Brene Brown um, talks about vulnerability essentially as like we see it as weakness in ourself, mm-hmm. but when we see somebody else actually be vulnerable, we see it as strength in them. So there's yeah. this interesting like paradox that actually happens where we feel like being vulnerable for us is like just absolute weakness, right? Sure. But we see somebody else do it and we're like, wow, that took tremendous bravery and courage to admit that. Yeah. But we can't, we can't allow ourselves the same you know, grace or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. To, to be vulnerable. And it's a really scary place. And it's not like a, I was strong and I, I was vulnerable. No, you're just like, I need help. <laughs> yeah. I need help. Yeah. And you right. I think you use the right word. It's grace. It's just a deep breath and some grace, whether you're a religious person or not, that word should land with people that just say, yeah, I was honest. I had to reach out for help. I had to ask for help. I had to accept help. I remember a a couple when I was going through my divorce asking if I wanted to come over for dinner. And I was like, I I can't leave my fucking house. Like, I'm just, I can't really even get off the couch. And they were like, well, do you mind if we just take what we were going to cook for you and drop it on your doorstep? And I was like, I, I, I can't let you finally, they, they, I remember the woman just being like, will you just fucking let us do this? <laughs> like, okay. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. Like, essentially, this is what we're going to do for you. And feeling so, uh, so much gratitude that they were willing to do it. And, and I remember it's still a lesson of a personal lesson of being like, yeah, okay, cool. I, I'm allowed to have points like this in my life too, because I've done that shit. Right. And it's that remembrance that we're, we are all are kind of going through the same thing or at times going through the same thing. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Can you talk to us about 
day one in Shanghai. So you've moved from, you're a kid from Papua New Guinea. You've moved from Indiana. (laughs) Walk me through waking up that first morning in Shanghai and you have a wife and one child at that point, or it was like a year and a half. Okay. (laughs) You have two kids. Yeah. So what's crazy? No, just one. Just one. I just had my, my first, yeah, my first boy. Okay. Um, yeah, so I actually looked this up later. So the po- population of, of Papua New Guinea, the entire country, is 9 million people. Yeah. The population of Shanghai is 25 million. <laughs> so one city <laughs> is three times the population of the entire country that I came from. <laughs> um, and like, of course, you know, Papua New Guinea, I just look up. I'm like, there's the Milky Way. Like, you know, look at all these beautiful stars and mountains. The right. And you're like, oh, is that the sun? Like, you know, it's so polluted sometimes in Shanghai. <laughs> Like, I, I don't know, you know, what's going on here. But um, yeah, so I'm in Shanghai. It's definitely, it was more of a culture shock than I was expecting, to be honest, because I felt like I did transitions really well. Like I've lived in a different country. I sure. lived in the US. I transitioned, you know, multiple times there. I, I did it really well. But moving to an Asian country is like a totally different, you know, breed, right? Because yep, it's yep. not like a, a like Germanic language, right? Like, right. You know, I went to Barcelona like two years back and I'm like, I think I know in this one week being here, not having studied Spanish at all. I think I know more Spanish than the entire year of being in China (laughs) because, you know, it's a tonal language. The characters are totally different. You're like, I don't know if that's a restaurant or a barbershop or like I can't read anything on the menu. Like, so that was a challenge to me. And I think it's also a challenge to me because one of the deeply held values that I have is connection with other people. Mm-hmm. And so just to feel totally connect, disconnected from anybody and also to feel like an idiot everywhere you go, like you're mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, you're trying to order something. You're like, sorry, like, I don't know what you're saying. And then they write it on a little napkin and you're like, sorry, I also can't read. <laughs> I, can't, I, just, I just am an imbecile, essentially, um, like. That's that's challenging. You're like I'm a very intelligent person and just feeling like yep. nothing, like very very powerless. And something that I distinctly remember actually it was interesting listening to music. Like mm. during that first week, I would put on the music and I'm like, "Oh, I can still like it's a funny thing to say, but it's like I can still listen to the same songs. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> like I can listen to the same songs. And there's certain things and it's different for every person, right? There's certain things that we do that can feel grounding, right? Even yeah. if it's feeling in control in a little bit, right? Yep. It's like, maybe it's making your bed. Maybe it's going for a run. Maybe it's listening to music. There's certain things like that that can yeah. actually really help us get through those transitions. Yeah. I think that's really important. For a lot of guys, it's exercise, right? Like you can deadlift in China. You can deadlift in Indiana. You can do pull-ups in New York City. You can do pull-ups in Papua New Guinea. I think it's real, that's a really good point to make. Um, okay. I, I, one thing just on that before you, before you keep going, just the aspect of grounding back into your body. Mm. So whether it's, whether it's exercise and this is, you know, you'll see this across, you know, psychotherapy, different, different religions, the aspects of just going like, what am I seeing right now? What am I hearing Mm. right now? What am I feeling right now? Those things you can, you can sense and you can control and, you know, barring any very, drastic, you know, circumstances. So that aspect of just getting out of your head and getting out of all the craziness and just going like, what am I feeling right now? What am I seeing? You know, paying attention to your breath, things like that, or exercise is such a great way to just get in your body as you get out of your head and you get into your body. Yeah. That's super helpful. Thank you. Hey folks, hope you're loving this conversation with Michael Bauman. Uh, If you haven't gotten to the five whys, please keep listening. It's a huge part of this. And if you would, if you've read my book, I have a favor to ask of you. It's now on Amazon. So please go to amazon.com, look it up. And if you would leave it a review, it's a huge, huge help. Uh, We are getting these books out faster than we ever have before. The movement is growing faster than we ever, it ever has before. And it's all due to help from the great listeners like you. So please just take a moment, hit pause, go to Amazon, leave a review for the book, and then come back and continue with Michael. Thank you. I want to make a big jump now, Michael. When when you're working with people, especially entrepreneurs, especially male entrepreneurs, what is the disconnect 
uh, and I know people, we just went from geography to what he does, but I really want to hit this point because I think it is very important. Why is, why is there a disconnect between, hey, I just looked at my, my success checklist and every fucking box is checked. And yet I look at my fridge and there's three Red Bulls, a 12 pack, a joint, a porn mag and a barbell. Like I'm exaggerating here, but why is there such a disconnect in your experience with very successful men externally and internally? Yeah. So there's, there's a very interesting distinction that actually needs to be made. And this is why I started my, my podcast success engineering is about this idea. So I read, you know, and start with why by Simon Sinek, Mm -hmm. there's a part where he talks about, he goes to MIT. There's this gathering of the Titans. These are multimillionaire entrepreneurs all getting together. The speaker asks them, how many of you have achieved your financial goals? Mm. 80% of the room put their hands up. These people are like, probably don't have to work another day in life. Right. And he follows it up with a question. How many of you feel like a success? And 80% of the room that had their hands up actually put it back down. Wow. And that, that story basically triggered the whole journey past that point. I'm like, oh, wow. What we're not actually looking at is mm. we're not trying to get to the appearance of success. We're actually trying to go, how can I feel mm-hmm. like a success? How can I feel like a success in every area of our life? So how can I feel like a success in regards to my wealth. And this is where it becomes very individual, right? Somebody Mm -hmm. might go, I have enough to eat, but I get to surf every day. Mm -hmm. That feels like freedom. That feels like success for me in regards to my wealth. Somebody else might go, I am, you know, giving away millions of dollars every year, you know, as a philanthropist, you know, changing the world that feels like success, right? You can be on the cover of like GQ or Vogue Mm -hmm. and actually hate your body. So you have the appearance of success, mm-hmm. but if there's a disconnect between actually feeling like a success. And okay. so some of it has to do with actually being very clear about the difference between achievement and success. So achievement is, is, is a goal. There's something where you can actually reach and you can check it off. Success yeah. is actually a state of being, and mm-hmm. you can, you can, analyze this on a lot of different levels. So it can be macro, you know, level, but it also can just be as micro as you want in terms of like, am I fully present in this moment? And that to me has been one of the biggest definitions of of success that I'm working towards. I wouldn't say I'm there, but I'm going, how can I actually be more present in my day? If I can do that, I would actually live a life without regrets. I wouldn't regret, you know, not being there for my kids. I wouldn't regret anything. If I can lengthen out those present moments, that Mm -hmm. allows me to be in this moment and to feel successful in this moment. That's an oversimplification, but um, sure. I want to dissect this a tiny bit and play a little bit of devil's advocate for the guy who's listening and goes, bro, I will certainly, I'm more than happy to be present when I've made my 10 million when I have the house with the Ferraris, when I have the like wife in each city, uh, how, okay, cool. Yeah. I, I dig you. I love what you just said. And I will be that when, how do you help your clients or how do you see people who have navigated and bridged that gap do so? Yeah, that's a great question. And you have to look at basically the science behind what makes us actually happy. So mm. it's really interesting. 50% if you look at what makes us happy, 50% of that is actually determined by a genetic set point. So they've done a bunch of twin studies and stuff like that. And they show really? that 50% of your happiness yeah, is determined by your genetics. We can't control that, right? But you can look at your glass half empty or half full. The other yeah. 50%, there's two other categories. One category, and this is where we spend, it's like your 80-20 principle, right? This is where we spend 80% of our time. It's on the 10, 10% of your happiness is actually affected by your job, your career, your money, your you know relationships, like relationships, I'll define that a little bit, but 10%. And that's actually where we focus most of our time. So there's a principle called hedonic adaptation. And it's essentially our body's very good at regulating homeostasis, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's blood pressure, whether it's heart rate, you know, whether it's pH balance, it's essentially going like, Ooh, there's a stimulus I need to correct back to balance, to homeostasis. Mm-hmm. But we do the same thing, unfortunately, kind of with pleasure. So we go, 
oh yes, I got a Ferrari. I can guarantee you in three months, you will not even be thinking about, oh, I'm driving a Ferrari and you'll probably be stuck in traffic just like everybody else. So the things we think will make us happy actually don't have as big of a return as we think they will. They've done studies on lottery winners that show they have the same level of happiness a year after they won the lottery as they did before winning it. Wow. Which is crazy. There's also studies that have done on people that have net worths of $10 million or more. I think there's 700 people in this study. And they showed they had just a slightly higher level of happiness than blue collar workers. And they had a lot more anxiety and stress. Yeah, And all of the questions around, is this person my friend because of my money or actually because of me? Mm-hmm. So the things we think will make us happy actually don't. So this brings us to the last 40%. So the 40% are actually daily intentional activities that we can do that are scientifically proven to increase our happiness. And it's things like you mentioned, things like meditation, right? Because mm-hmm. it helps us savor, savor the moment. It's actually so much research around our social connections. Harvard did a study. It's the, the longest longitudinal study in the world. It's called the study of adult, uh, adult development. They mm-hmm. tracked 1,300 people from when they were in college all the way till when they died. So it, wow. there's three different directors that track these people, socioeconomic status, their health measurements, their career, their retirement. They tracked all of these variables. And they found that the biggest correlation between their health was actually the quality of the relationships that they had. Mm. And you look at that in reference to when people are dying. And I know you have experience, you know, direct Mm -hmm. experience with this. They don't regret like saying, I wish I'd spent more time on my business. Right. Like I wish I'd spent more time with people. Right. But if we can get that in our heads now, Mm. rather than 50 years from now. Yeah. Right. That's how we can actually create happiness right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that you know kind of dissects the research around what you're talking about a little bit. Yeah, it's a mind fuck, huh? That I think a number of people hit that cliche point, and I certainly did. That wow, I've got all the things that I wanted, and yet I'm I'm not happy. I'm I'm not fulfilled. I'm actually even more and miserable isn't the right word because <clears throat> i think that level of dissatisfaction is it's so subconscious it's so under the table we almost have to look at the behavior rather than the feeling if you had asked me at 39 are you happy I'm like yeah i've never been happier but if you looked at my behavior it's like well you drink a lot <laughs> you smoke a lot of dope uh, <laughs> you're looking at a lot of porn exercising a lot uh, you're not sleeping much I'm like, yeah, this is what successful, happy people, this is how they live. So how do you bring this awareness to people, Michael? So if you have a guy who, who reaches out and perhaps that even that setup is a little bit disingenuous because if he's reaching out there, he obviously is aware of it. How would you take someone off the entrepreneur street? Just like, hey, pluck someone out. And we're like, hey, man, are you enjoying your life? Are you satisfied? Are you fulfilled? How do you get them to look past the balance sheet, the garage, the who's sleeping in the bedroom, how big the house is, and look inward to actually find the truth of the answer? Yeah. And so that's, that's a good question. And some of it has to do with working with people that are ready to change. So if, if, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the trans-theoretical model of change, mm-hmm. essentially, essentially there's different stages. So there's a pre-contemplative stage. So if I'm trying to go like, hey, we need to lose weight, right? And somebody's in a pre-contemplative state, they haven't even thought about mm-hmm. losing weight. And I'm mm-hmm. actually trying to jump them from mm-hmm. that stage to action, mm-hmm. which is not going to work. Right. So you right. actually work them up to the stage. So you have pre-contemplative, they haven't even thought about it. Then there's contemplative. They're like, hmm, I should probably lose weight. You know, like yeah. they're, they're at that point, but that's, that's, you know, still it. If you jump them from that point to action, it still doesn't work. Hmm. Then you need to get them to a preparation stage where they're like, oh, I should sign up for a gym, right? Yeah. I should buy workout clothes. I should, you know, fit out my whole gym, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Then then they move to the preparation stage. Then you have the actual action stage where they're like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to actually start acting on this. Then you have like a maintenance stage. Mm-hmm. Um, where now they're maintaining it and then you have to incorporate relapse. So you have to actually work with a person based on where they're at. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So sometimes people are just on the entrepreneurial, get $10 million, get a hundred million dollars. I don't care about the rest of that. And and that's fine. Right. But if they're actually wanting to make a change, you have to start really small, especially with very high profile, very busy people. Yeah. Time is very difficult to come by. So you have to start with very small things. And I would flip it around to them and be like, what, what makes you feel alive? What Mm. do you enjoy? Even if it's just a little bit, can we find things like, you know, five minutes? I love Mm. five minutes, right? Is there five minutes of your day that you can do something that you actually enjoy? Or can you remember back to what you wanted to be as a kid or what you really enjoyed doing at that period of time? And there's all the research around flow and things like that, that help us feel happy. And you can actually find that in your work. And it doesn't have to change your job that you're doing right now. You just have to reframe it. And so you have to start with some of these things. Some of the other things to address is we have these fundamental needs as humans. So there's a need for certainty. There's a need for variety. So if everything's all certain, then we know like, I got to change it up, right? Right. There's a need for love and connection with other people. There's a fundamental need for significance to actually feel like we matter. And then there's needs that are um, higher, kind of higher than that, quote unquote, that are like for growth and for contribution. So the question to ask is around work, what fundamental need are you actually trying to meet mm-hmm. with the work that you do, right? Are you trying to meet that need for certainty? Maybe mm-hmm. it's a need for significance. I'm the person that provides for my family. I feel significant in that, Right. Maybe it's a need for connection. You feel, you know, you're like, I get to relate to these other CEOs and I feel, you know, great with that. Right. But actually peeling it back and going, what fundamental need are you trying to meet? Are there other ways, like in what area of your life, you know, maybe besides work, do you feel significant? Can you tell me about a time that you felt significant? What was happening during that time? What was going on? What were you doing? Right. Can you felt like a time where you felt in control or you felt certain? Right. And that's important right now with everything that's going crazy in COVID. For sure. Like we talked about, there's things we can control, whether it's our body and things like that. How can we find different ways to meet those fundamental needs? And mm. it's not a 180 shift, <laughs> like, oh, I'm doing this. And now I'm like a Zen Buddha sitting on a mountain. Like, <laughs> it's like, how can we incorporate this in small ways that start to shift this? to a way that meets these fundamental ways in different areas or gives you strategies mm-hmm. to notice and be aware of these triggers that happen and then take a different different path. So it sounds like you're asking people to look, this is a more scientific reason or a more scientific layout of the why. And, and I, are you asking, you're saying that a lot of people just don't know why? Like, hey, I've just, I just want the 10 million bucks. Well, why do you want the 10 million bucks? I, because that's what, that's what success looks like. So are you, are you taking them down a, or like a deeper road so they know why they're doing what they're doing? Yes, I actually do that. So I try to look at like, you know, how can we feel like a success in each, each area of our life? So you have your you know, physical area, you have relationships, you have mental, emotional, you have spiritual, then you have your finances and your career. So you go, how can I feel like a success in these areas? And then you incorporate different values. So you can incorporate the values of like freedom, mm-hmm. of, of peace, of joy, um, creativity. And you can go, what feels free? Mm-hmm. How can I feel free in regards to my physical body? That might be for a grandparent. That might be like, I can get up and down off the ground. Yep. That feels like freedom, right? Mm-hmm. For somebody else, it's like, I'm climbing Mount Everest. Right. Then also like, how can I feel at peace? with my physical body? How can I feel at peace with my wealth, mm-hmm. right? How can I feel at peace in my mind, right? So you start asking these questions around success filtered through the lens of these values. But then there's actually, like you mentioned, there's a very powerful tool. It's called the five whys and it's developed by Toyota in their manufacturing process. They were basically going like, we ask when we, before we make a decision, we ask why five times. So if somebody comes and goes, I'm going to, um, I'm going to like change, you know, my weight. I'm going to lose some weight. Right. Yeah. You go, okay, well, why is that important to you? Right. And they go, I want to look better and feel better. Yeah. Great. Great. So why is looking better and feeling better important to you? Right. Mm-hmm. And they, well, 
you know, when I, when I was, you know, at the weight that I was in college, I felt, I felt better. I felt like I was more in control, you know, and then, well, why is feeling like you're being in control important to you? Mm. Well, I feel like if I'm in control of my body, then I'm in control of my life. And I feel like I'm a, a better husband. You know, I'm a better father. Um, I'm just a better overall person and my life is more fulfilled. Now you're actually starting to get to right. the really deep why. And so, yes, like you mentioned, there's ways to unpack these layers of why are essentially the stories that we tell yeah. ourselves and going, what's the identity? So the identity underlies the feeling. You have the appearance of success. Then you have the feeling of success. Then you have the identity, basically the stories we tell around ourselves um, that we construct and then deconstruct in different areas. And then underneath that, you have um, presence, essentially awareness and presence. Um, and we operate at different levels in different areas, but just working down those levels um, can be helpful to explore that. Yeah, my, my, I have like 50,000 questions. Uh, <laughs> what happens in your experience when people get to that fifth why? Like what's the, I, I understand it cognitively, but what's the value of getting to that answering that fifth, like, well, why is that? Why is that in your experience, especially working with men or especially working with high performers who, who gives a fuck about that? Or why should they give a fuck about the fifth? Why it's, it's a great question. And it's not saying again, it's not saying that they have to, right? Mm -hmm. So people, people either change their goals to match their behaviors mm. or their behaviors to match their goals. And either one is actually okay. okay. We oftentimes think of like, you need to change your behaviors to match your goals. Mm -hmm. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes you have a ton going on. You, like, like we mentioned, you're not going to have you know, all the time in the world to sit on a mountaintop. You have a family, you're providing yeah. for them. You have people, you're a leader, you're yeah. an entrepreneur. You have all of these other demands, right? So it's instead of going like uh, all here or all there, it's just going like what percentage would you kind of like to operate from, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, we're more present. Mm -hmm. and sometimes, sometimes we're not. And none of us, except for maybe, you know, Dalai Lama or something like that, um, is like fully present in every moment. It's, it's sure. always just like a trying to be there yeah. um, if you want to be, right? And it, mm. it doesn't have to be. And the thing that I would say is, why would you want to be there? There's a really good quote um, by Naval Ravikant. And super smart dude. But he says basically, happiness is peace in motion, mm. and peace is happiness at rest. Wow. And that quote is just so great because sometimes I see, I see a disconnect between happiness and peace. Sure. But it's like somebody who is happy is actually carrying their peace with them as mm. they go around. And somebody who's peaceful is actually, it's happiness at rest. There's a contentment and there's yeah. actually a calming of the mind. And if anybody has, has been there or tasted that, mm -hmm. they would know like, oh, this is why I'd want to go to this place. Super important. I really appreciate you laying all that out. I, I remember, Michael, a, a coach I had early on, this was like 15 years ago, and he looked at my schedule. And it was at the time I was running a gym. I had a chocolate company. I was writing for like two different magazines. Uh, Yachty, it was like full in addiction, all the things. And he, and he asked, like, well, where's there space for peace in all of this? And I remember writing back, like, why the fuck would I want peace? Like, what am I going to draw upon to, to, to be successful if I actually find peace? So would you mind speaking just a tiny bit before I, we get to like, what is the outcome of all of this from someone who's going, yeah, but my motivation, the thing I draw upon is the fact that I'm uncomfortable. Like I need to put myself in that fighter's mentality of like Spartan living and up at 5.00 AM and, and peace will slow me down. Peace will actually take me out of my, out of my mission. What do you speak to? How do you, how do you address that when you're working with high performers? That's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting one for sure, because a lot of what we build our lives on is essentially the, 
the wounds and the pains of our past. So we, whether it's in our childhood and stuff like that, there's ways that we learn to cope to keep us safe. And we develop very effective ways to keep ourselves safe. And we channel that like entrepreneurship, essentially just like a life's journey channeled through a business. Like, you know, we channel this, (laughs) we channel the stuff that's going on inside of us and it it can work, quote unquote, Mm. it can work to help us reach those things that we're wanting that, that we're wanting to reach to whatever it is. And like, like you said, you're like, why, why would I even want this? Mm -hmm. And it's a question you have to actually kind of wrestle with. But yeah. the thing that I would say, I actually interviewed the NFL performance director on on my show. And okay. when he started, when he started his gym, he's the he's also the founder of Exos. Um, if anybody's familiar with that company, um, they're responsible for 50% of NFL draft picks. Oh, he wow. said he put on the wall, he basically said success is work plus rest. Mm. And we focus so much on this side, but if you look even physiologically, if you want to get stronger, you're not getting stronger when you're in the gym. Sure. You're getting stronger when you're resting and sleeping. Yeah. Right. That's actually, you break down your muscles when you're going to the gym, you rebuild your muscles stronger to handle bigger stimuli when you're resting and recovering Mm. or sleeping. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we overlook that aspect so much. Actually, there's so much research around, you know, sleep and recovery and stuff like that. This guy had the most ultimate morning routine I've ever seen. You know, like he has one of the float tanks in his house and infrared saunas. Like, I mean, he's doing the whole thing because he knows to to perform at the level that he does and manage the multi-million dollar company that he does. Mm -hmm. He actually needs to prioritize rest and recovery. So I would talk about it even from that avenue. If it's not even like you want to get to that, you know, deep place of peace, sure, it's, sure, it, sure. you reframe it and go, if you want to perform at a very high level for a very long time, yeah, that's the variable that people don't take into consideration. You can perform incredibly high for a very short period of time, but it tears you down. So yep. if you want to do it for a long time, you have to factor in the rest and recover part of that equation. Yeah, that's so important. I I interviewed uh, Dr. Kirk Parsley a couple of months ago, and his whole he's the he was the MD for the SEALs, and his whole thing is on sleep. He's right. like, we have such a dysfunctional, fucked up view of like, oh, you you didn't sleep last night? Great. Guess what? You're now you're now performing like shit, stud right. boy. You know, you who are like wearing that as a badge of honor, like you are actually you've dropped yourself down a couple layers. So I think that's a really really important point to bring up. Michael, what do you see as the after effect? So you're working with people and getting them to actually feel and actually create a sense of peace or a sense of satisfaction or a sense of pride or actual, you know, like the 80% who doesn't feel successful in your experience, what happens to men specifically when they do, when the feelings match the balance sheet? Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to to picture too. And I would I would the way I would frame it is in regards to health. So interestingly enough, pain we don't notice that we're healthy until we're in pain. Hmm. And then sometimes we don't notice that we've come back to health because there's no pain there. Right. So there's this interesting dynamic where you just feel and it also it's very difficult for our brain to put language around some of the emotional centers. It doesn't have a language part associated to it. So it's difficult to say like, I just feel good, right? So people, you say, I I feel good, or my life is in alignment. There's these ways that we try to use words to get around that sense of just being and centeredness and, you know, also alignment of identity values and goals. So a lot of the disconnect people feel is they have this internal story, this identity, they tell themselves that it's like, I'm the type of person who does this. Mm. My behaviors are not actually showing it. And that is causing tension within me. When you align the stories that you have, the identity that you have with your values and with what you're actually doing, you just have this, this togetherness. And so Mm. you feel, you regain the sense of purpose in what you're doing as an entrepreneur or 
your motivation, but you also round that out with now I feel good in my body. And now I actually have good relationships with my family, you know, like, or I'm working towards it. Right. It's not, again, not an all or nothing. Um, so it's difficult to see because again, when we're not in pain, we're like, Oh, you know, I'm just in health. There's actually not really a word for the opposite of pain. Mm. Like there's these interesting things. There's fundamental things. Pain is essentially like the body's way to say that something fundamental is not getting met. Right. So we have this word for pain, but we don't really have a direct opposite for it. Right. We have a word for right. thirst, sure. but we don't have a direct opposite for thirst because it's just like, this is the state that we should be, mm. right? And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, social pain, and this is something that guys don't really realize, it lights up the exact same network that physical pain does. Mm. So when you feel pain, it's actually your brain registering the neurons that are, you know, something is going wrong in your body. Yeah. Yeah. Social pain, rejection, isolation, it lights up that same network. Your brain treats them as the same thing. Wow. And this is why the language around pain, like I broke my heart, yeah. right? It's actually the same language as I broke my arm. Mm. Um, the language shows that it's like oh, similar in our brain, but we don't treat it the same, especially as guys. We don't treat that emotional pain as the same as a physical pain. Yeah. We know that actually some of those traumas last way longer into our life that are emotional and social in nature than us breaking our arm. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You you ask any guy, like, what was the first time you got rejected by a woman? And it's usually like, it's not, you know, I was 28. It's like second grade, Susie Johnson. (laughs) I can remember the dress. Like she said, you're gross and ran away from me. And it's like, and and now I've built this $10 million company and <laughs> I don't sleep at night. You're like, man, maybe something you want to look into. Darn you, Susie. <laughs> Wherever you are in the world. Uh, I, I love it. You know, I've also said to a number of guys, having joy and satisfaction in what you do won't diminish your motivation. I've never walked away from like a delicious meal and been like, you know, I just don't think I want to eat ever again. Like that was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost my motivation for food, but yet I've worked with a number of guys who said, you know, if I'm not in pain, I'm not pushing. I won't, I won't do it. And yet I think it's really important as we evolve together and evolve in consciousness to have a different source for our motivation than, than just the suck, right? The world's <laughs> going to put us there anyway, a couple of times just to remind us how humble we are. Uh, Michael, this has been an amazing conversation and, and super in, insightful and impactful for guys who are looking for for more of your work or where you hang out or actually to to work specifically with you. Uh, where do they do that and how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so they can go to my website, um, successengineering.org, um, and you can you know sign up to work with me there. Um, I'm opening up spots at the start of the new year for new clients. Um, so we, we can do that or just check out, um, success engineering, you know, my podcast, I interview tons of wonderful, amazing people that have tons of insight. Um, yeah. so definitely check that out as well. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on, brother. I know you stayed up late for this conversation, but I always love jamming with you and look forward to doing it, doing it again soon. Cheers. Absolutely. This is Trevor Bohm signing off on another episode of the uncivilized podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading.